This week's episode is made possible by our friends at Independent Bank. You can learn more about them at i-bankonline.com. Good morning, Memphis. You are listening to Meanwhile in Memphis on WIXR Radio 91.7 FM. Meanwhile in Memphis is brought to you by New Memphis. And your hosts today are myself, Anna Thompson, and my colleague, Jamie Bowler-Raup. Hello. Good morning, Anna. Good morning, Jamie. Happy November. It is officially birthday month in my house. So oh, wow. It's full steam ahead. We're excited. Excited for the holidays and everything coming up. Yeah, it's definitely an exciting time of year. So speaking of exciting things that are coming up, we have a few events we want to make sure that you hear about. And the first one is our Teacher's Lounge that will be on November 14th over at Good Fortune. Oh, the food is the best there. So good. Um, the topic will be AI in the classroom with the executive director of Code Crew and recent podcast guest, Meka Aguayque. So if any expert on that topic, um, I'm honestly super bummed that I'm not an educator to go listen to this <laughs> because that's going to be a really exciting topic. Everything from kids writing papers on chat GPT to like mm-hmm. all the different ways that AI is kind of infiltrating the classroom infiltrating is negative sorry kind of coming into the classroom <laughs> um, and then so teachers lounge on November 14th is open to educators only so educators be sure to go to newmemphis.org slash events to RSVP for that food, and that's free right yes it is free for educators nice. and food and beverages will be provided Uh, Another exciting event we have coming up is uh, another event in our Celebrate What's Right series. They'll be coming up on November 28th. It will be at the Memphis Botanic Gardens. This is also a free event. It'll be from 3.30 to 5 p.m. We'll have a conversation um, about something that's on a lot of people's mind on the top of our mind, crime and safety, and, you know, really featuring some of the leaders in our community that that have innovative solutions for how to address these problems. Absolutely. So as a little homework for you, listener, if you have not already heard our conversation with our friends over at Memphis Allies and the University of Memphis Law School, that is from a few weeks ago. You could kind of scroll back through the archives and take a listen to that before you join us on November 28th for Mm -hmm. Celebrate What's Right. Mm Um, And then finally, our New Memphis Alumni Holiday Party will be on December 5th. So New Memphis alumni, please check your emails to be able to join us for the annual alumni holiday party. We are so excited to celebrate the year with you on December 5th. So switching gears a little bit today, Jamie and I are discussing a topic that impacts far too many. Um, It's that of homelessness. According to the National Alliance to End Homelessness, approximately 4.2 million young people experience homelessness each year in the United States. Homelessness is a complex issue that affects individuals from all walks of life, including young people. Because New Memphis played an integral role in assisting with the 2020 census completion efforts, um, we are following through with the data to spotlight resources and solutions for our city. We've invited Dr. Elena De La Vega and Reverend Lisa Anderson to discuss the census data and the social complexities that come along with that reality. Dr. Elena De La Vega is professor of social work at the University of Memphis, where she teaches and researches poverty and social welfare policy. 
Dr. Delavega's areas of expertise involve poverty, its causes, measurement, and remediation. Dr. Delavega has created a body of work consisting of over 35 peer-reviewed publications, over 100 reports, newspaper and magazine articles, book chapters, fact sheets, and translations, close to 200 presentations, including international presentations, keynote addresses, and a TEDx Memphis talk focused on the Blame Index, which she developed in 2017. She has produced the Memphis Poverty Fact Sheet, updated yearly since 2012, to dig deeper into the data provided and to help contextualize the numbers for actionable solutions. And Reverend Lisa Anderson is the founder and executive director of Room in the Inn Memphis. She is a graduate of Christian Brothers University and of Memphis Theological Seminary. During her career as a chaplain, she was a founding member, vice president, and president of the Pediatric Chaplain Network and served on the faculty of the Pediatric Chaplains Institute. She was appointed by President Barack Obama to serve on the Health and Human Services Task Force on Infant Mortality. Chaplain Anderson co-authored a number of studies in palliative care and end-of-life care, and she authored a chapter in the Handbook of Pediatric Cancer. She has been a very involved advocate for those that are guests of Room in the Inn, and she currently serves on the Emergency Shelter COVID Working Group for the City of Memphis and Shelby County and the Board of Directors of Memphis Mental Health Institute. Room in the Inn began as a small outreach project of one congregation in 2009 and has quickly grown to become a way of life and a ministry for more than 50 congregations. Please join us in welcoming Dr. Elena De La Vega and Reverend Lisa Anderson to the studio. Welcome to our podcast today. Um, we have discussed previously on this podcast how important language is, and so we want to make um, we want to take a moment to define a few terms that we'll be using today. So, are there particular terms that are preferred when discussing youth and homelessness? Well, one of the things that I really like is to talk about people in poverty or people in homelessness or people experiencing homelessness rather than refer to the poor or the homeless because uh, it is important to highlight the fact that this is a condition in which people can find themselves in but does not define them as people. Yeah, that is absolutely true for Ruminan too. We refer to our guests as uh, those experiencing homelessness and we talk about them as being guests instead of clients because that is also a tag that they get a lot in the community that associates them with things that people think of negatively. So really um, emphasizing their humanity. Um, right. Is So who all would be considered youth? Is that just anyone under 18? In well, the continuum of care process, it's, it's anyone 24 and younger. Oh, 18 wow. to 24. Is, I mean, uh, yes, I think that's the youth program that gets funding as 18 to 24. Yeah. Uh, before 18, children, uh, the children, they're minors, uh, they have access to the child welfare system and they have access to foster parents and other things. So there, there are supports in place for children or for minors, for people under the age of 18. But there are no supports or systems in place. In fact, the system is particularly egregious 
for young people between the ages of 18 and 25 because they have no resources or supports, but they are expected to um, fend for themselves. At the same time, they don't qualify for the earned income tax credit, for instance, if they're under the age of 25. They still need to have uh, their parental taxes in order to qualify for Pell Grants. So if the parents refuse to assist them in any way, uh, even if they are living on their own and completely uh, self-dependent, they don't receive Pell Grants. So it's a very difficult age in which we're basically not providing any supports, but required them to still be treated as minors in many ways. It, it really is a very difficult age. Wow, that's really illuminating. I didn't quite realize that 18 to 24 or 25-year-olds are very much seen as adults who can, like you said, Elena, fend for themselves, but there are no supports in which they can fend for themselves, truly. Yeah. So they uh, can't even qualify for a Pell Grant so that they could attend college. If, say, there is a youth whose parents, poor or rich, um, it doesn't really matter, refuse to provide tax information for the FAFSA, this particular person, 18 to 24, wouldn't be able to receive any financial aid at all unless uh, the courts intervene. Now, if we have somebody who is a youth in poverty, a youth who doesn't have familial or other supports, this youth is very unlikely to be able to access the court systems to be declared an emancipated minor. That takes a lot of resources. So what happens is they wouldn't have the resources that are available to other youth that are a little bit better off. And uh, they, if they're working, they won't qualify for the earned income tax credit. Um, people cannot qualify until they're age 25 unless they have a child. And so if you're looking at somebody who, you know, they've tried to do everything right, but they don't have resources, they don't have familial support, they're pretty much on their own um, and nobody will help them. They have no access to any resources, okay. which is terribly sad. It is terribly sad. Um, and unfair, in my opinion. So now that we've gotten a little bit of like ground rules and some definitions kind of, so to speak, uh, I wanted to get started by having each of you share a little bit about yourselves and your respective organizations. So Lisa, we can get started with you and Room in the Inn. Sure, thank you. Um, Room in the Inn is uh, a uh, nonprofit, a faith-based nonprofit that uh, Primarily, uh, our mission is emergency shelter for those experiencing homelessness. We have uh, been in existence for 14 years now. Our primary uh, shelter program involves congregations in the city that open their doors to serve people who are literally living on the street during the coldest and hottest time of the year in the city. Um, so those congregations take people to their own buildings and they serve them dinner and they provide some shelter 
And uh, so it's a an overnight experience. In the last two and a half years, we have expanded our services to two other programs. One of those is a recuperative care center for medically fragile individuals experiencing homelessness who are being discharged from the hospital, but not well enough to care for themselves on the street. Uh, mostly people without insurance, without income, so they couldn't uh, qualify to go to a nursing home or a rehab facility to um, recuperate from whatever their illness was. And so that's one of the programs on our new campus uh, in the medical district. And the other one is we serve uh, families. We have 14 rooms for families with children, and um, we assist them during the rapid rehousing process and their search for housing. Um, so there's programming on our campus, social workers that work with them uh, in that process. So those are the three programs that Room in the Inn has. Uh, and um, really the primary mission for us is, is to offer safe and um, adequate shelter for, for as many people as possible. Thank you so much, Lisa. Um, Elena, can you share a little bit about the work that you do at the University of Memphis? Yes. Um, so the University of Memphis is an engaged university. We have been community engaged for a very long time. In fact, we are one of very few Carnegie-designated engaged universities. We are now an R1, which is one, uh, it is the top level of, of all universities. We're very proud of it and the work that we've done. But we have done this while serving Memphis, working with Memphis and being integrated in, we believe, all aspects of Memphis. And so that has been one of the biggest prideful moments for the university. Um, I am a professor in the School of Social Work and the School of Social Work is also very, very well integrated in Memphis. We serve the community through our internships. We are constantly doing engaged research and working with Memphis. My particular contribution, in addition to the poverty research that I do and, you know, the peer-reviewed publications and, and, of course, the things that I have to do as a professor, is a Memphis Poverty Fact Sheet, which I started publishing in 2012 and has tracked poverty in Memphis since then. I've been publishing these every year, and I think it's very well received. It's very useful in that it provides really a metric for seeing how our city is doing over time. And what has been, well, first, the good news, we did not do as badly as the rest of the nation or other cities Yay. last year. So Yay. that's something we should be very proud <laughs> and happy. But poverty seems to be very resistant to what we're doing. So it's, it's pretty stable. We're, we're trying to bring it down, uh, but we're not moving the needle down as much as we want, um, but we're working on it. So I am very proud to be able to do this work. I am very proud to talk about this and the really important structural solutions that we need. 
Uh, and we do need structural solutions. Uh, poverty is as much uh, a problem of the of the city and of the nation. Part of the problem is the miserable minimum wage that we have and how it keeps everybody down at 725 is not enough to pay rent, let alone any of the other things we need. 725 an hour does not bring anybody out of poverty, even when we measure it as slow as we do. And so we do have really important structural problems that we need to address, not only as a city, but as a nation. And then we have the, the differences in race, which are very, very big in Memphis. And we can see that poverty among whites, poverty among blacks and Hispanics, completely different things. So we have a lot of work to do. We, we have tremendous work to do, and we need to really address this in structural ways. Thank you so much for that um, kind of insight into your work and the work that the University of Memphis has put into this. Um, so congratulations on all of the status statuses, plural, yeah. yes, that yes. the University of Memphis um, has been awarded and honored with. I know that the work that you are doing contributes a lot to that. So we thank you for that. You mentioned um, the poverty fact sheet and how it interfaces with data over time. Um, so yay that Memphis didn't get worse, uh, but we, like you said, we still have a lot of work to do. So in researching the poverty fact sheet, um, I learned that the, like you said, the rest of the nation shows a rise in youth homelessness, and yet Memphis kind of bucked that trend. We kind of stayed stable. So could you share a little bit about, uh, what you have found that would be factors that contribute to Memphis kind of bucking that trend or factors that might contribute to the rise in youth homelessness overall? And Lisa, um, after she's done, I'd love your insights on the same question. So there are a number of factors. One of the factors is that Memphis as a big distribution region and we do logistics and that was the one industry that was important during the pandemic. So it is, it's very interesting, but things like pandemic and economic shocks and disasters have different impacts in different areas. So because Memphis is actually not as big on tourism than, uh, say, Hawaii, we were able to to survive that. The tourism industry, of course, was decimated during the pandemic everywhere, but the logistics industry, as everybody turned to the internet uh, to acquire whatever goods they needed and, and have them delivered at home, that was actually one protective factor for Memphis, the fact that we had the one industry that was going to be resistant, you know, other other than tech, high, you know, communications tech. Um, this was the one industry that not only survived, but thrived during the pandemic. So that is one of the aspects. Um, another aspect is 
that we could actually have measurement error and not being able to really capture everything that is going on. And so um, the numbers are what the numbers are, but the way that the census and the counting time collect information may miss a lot of the people who are experiencing poverty and homelessness. And therefore, you know, we have the numbers we have, we collect the numbers we collect, we look at trends, how accurate, there is always room for interpretation there. Um, the other thing that I think it's important to take into account is that Memphis tends to be a couple of years behind the trend. And I have seen this happen before where we go, oh, yes, we're not doing as bad. And then two years later, boom, we see it come and hit us. So I'm not necessarily sure that we are out of the woods yet, as it were. It is possible that we will see a delayed reaction to Memphis. And, and we have seen it where Memphis is sort of behind the trends um, in getting to the situation and also in exiting it. So as things normalize and, thing, and people start spending money on travel again or uh, people start going out to it rather than having food delivered, Will we have these impacts come to us? Um, we already know that international paper is having to cut down. This is a trend that is long in coming as people become more used to doing things electronically. We're printing a lot less things. Um, so paper industry uh, may start, you know, retrenching. It's not going to go away 100%, but we will, will we see a retrenchment? It's possible. Uh, will we see a retrenchment of the logistic industry as people return to more normal or more in-person way of doing things? It's difficult to know. It's difficult to see what will happen. So I'm cautiously optimistic, uh, but but it's important to highlight that this is very cautious, if it makes any sense. Yeah, uh, absolutely. So um, this is a lot of great, great information. Thank you. Um, you've already shared a bit, Elena, about um, some of the things that you might you might recommend that could um, could address the problems of youth homelessness, uh, for instance, raising the minimum wage. I'm curious, um, Lisa, if there are any any factors that you would add that could help, you know, help contribute to creating a safer, thriving community here in our city. And, um, you know, say there's an ideal world, like what what would you recommend? What are some of the things that would need to change in order to address this problem? I think the, the biggest crisis in our work right now is having housing that is adequate, that is uh, inhabitable for people who are already living in in that poverty situation, uh, that there are some sort of some systems in place. And as Elena mentioned, those are those tend to be broken or not adequate. And uh, but even the systems that are in place are stressed and uh, having availability of housing is a, a major issue 
in the city now. Um, for the people that we serve, uh, just the basic things that could change their everyday life uh, and opportunities are transportation and childcare. Uh, we every day we are uh, struggling to help people find just the the basic um, needs that they have to to do what they want to do, which is to find ways to succeed in their goals of having employment, of getting education. Uh, but for many of these families that we serve who are living in this poverty situation, um, there the barriers to getting to those places is uh, insurmountable sometimes. So uh, we work every day to try to overcome that, but the resources just aren't there. The city does not have a, a structure that supports people who uh, need to get from place to place and don't have uh, transportation of their own. Uh, we can get people employed uh, pretty easily, uh, but they can't keep that employment if they don't have a place for their children to be while they're working, or if they don't have a way to get there, if they have to depend on a, a transportation system that is not reliable or only works sometimes. Uh, so that we, those are the barriers that we see keeping people in these places of um, uh, feeling hopeless that there's no way out of it. Lisa, to follow up on that, um, I kind of have a two-part question. So one, um, with a new mayoral, city mayoral um, administration kind of being ushered in here soon, do you have some hopes, like Elena said, maybe you're cautiously optimistic or cautiously hopeful about some of the solutions that might be able to come into play in future years? Well, I think that to keep doing this work, you just have to always be, be hopeful that the next uh, the next group of leadership is going to um, address the issues that seem to always be overlooked. Um, there are so many things in the city that take precedence over fixing the systems that are keeping people into, in this place of, of poverty and homelessness. So I, I am optimistic, uh, partially because the incoming mayor has a a history of working in community and housing development, you know, situations as director of um, the HCD for years. So I feel, and we worked closely with him during the pandemic. So I, I do have some hopefulness that I don't think I've had in the last few years. Um, during that process, I feel like um, that, department especially was forward thinking, thinking about permanent solutions for shelter and uh, resources. So, so sure, I, I am trying to be very hopeful and um, optimistic um, and, and hope that the right people are in the conversations. And I think conversations like this is what it takes, is really talking to people who who understand it from both perspectives, uh, from a perspective of of what the data says and what the trends say, but also a perspective of people who are boots on the ground and seeing faces of people every day. Absolutely. I'm also curious, Lisa, how um, Room in the Inn and how other organizations like yours might utilize resources like the Poverty Fact Sheet that is created by Elena and the University of Memphis annually in order to create solutions. Well, it's amazing information, and uh, I, you know, 
I think being surprised, pleasantly surprised that uh, Memphis did so well through those years of the pandemic and coming out of that. Um, for us, it's constantly looking at what are the things that are continuing to keep people where they are in this situation and what those solutions might be. And if that is working with employers, working with uh, creating more childcare opportunities. Uh, uh, for us, we have uh, begun to think in terms of housing stabilization. So uh, helping people to move from uh, a place of living day-to-day in scarcity to having a place to live is usually a difficult transition. And so we are seeing that offering some stabilization for a period of time is offering them a longer term success in becoming housed and sustaining that house, housing. So so those are the things that we are uh, encouraged that people are having those employment opportunities. And uh, I think stabilizing that is where we are focused most often. Starting with you, Elena, but both of you, please feel free to weigh in on this question. What are some of the social impacts of youth homelessness for both, I I suppose, for both the people who are experiencing it and also for the community at large? Well, uh, for the people who are experiencing it, it has all sorts of long-term impacts. Uh, Health impacts, most definitely, because when people are not able to have a stable place for hygiene, a stable place for healthy sleep, uh, healthy food, uh, the damage to the body, it may not be as apparent when one is 18 or 20 or 21, but the long-term impact is going to result in more morbidity, uh, less years to live a lower life expectancy so definitely uh really important health impacts uh those also have community impacts because if somebody has a less healthy life they may end up using the emergency room which is incredibly expensive a lot more throughout their life so we all end up paying for that Uh, But there are also mental health impacts that are severe on the people who are experiencing homelessness and this extreme form of poverty and exclusion. And so that might actually result in a much less safe community for all of us. Uh, It does result in increased crime. It it results in um, an increased disease load for our community, we're all less safe. Um, But also, it's important to remember that ultimately, we all depend on everybody. And when we exclude such a great number of our people, this impacts negatively all our businesses, all our communities. People have a lot fewer sales than they would otherwise have. Uh, it, it just attracts fewer businesses for everyone. It it makes Memphis dismissible in the grand scheme of things. So it is terrible for the people who are suffering, but it's also terrible for all of us. We cannot exclude 
people and then expect that we are all going to be fine. Uh, it, it's just negative for our economy. It's negative for our overall health. It's negative in terms of crime. It's negative in terms of how we are perceived uh, nationally and internationally. It's just awful everywhere. It creates blight. It, it's just awful. What do you have to add to that conversation, Lisa? Well, absolutely. Those are all realities that I think we see in Memphis every single day. Uh, from from my perspective and every day in our building with people who are directly impacted by that, certainly the health care issues we see every day because we're taking in people who have no other place to go. This is a last resort to have any sort of hope of recovering from uh, cancer treatment or from amputations or from heart attacks uh, instead of going right back to the street and right back to the emergency room. So we see that impact. But but when we're talking about children and families, the uh, complete lack of community is what is always striking to me, that the, the impact of being in an environment where uh, children are playing together, uh, where People are having conversation together about their circumstances, but also just about life and realizing that in so many areas of their life, they're isolated from that experience and uh, watching, you know, just little sparks of hopefulness come out of just an experience of having some friendships develop and some some understanding that they're not alone in this. And I think the isolation of poverty and homelessness is something that um, destroys spirit. It's just uh, people feel like they're not contributing, that they're not valued, and um, there's just a, an emotional poverty that we all uh, that we are all impacted by. Um, and children, especially, uh, having never experienced this community, this idea that um, they're they are valued, that they are cared about, that they're beautiful, that they have something to contribute to a community. Um, I think those are the things that are impacted by creating spaces where people who are are living in this situation can can see that there is some some hopefulness uh, just in the community itself that they are most often excluded from. And we see the the trauma. I mean, and we haven't said that word yet, but it's obvious that that's what we are dealing with every day. The, the trauma of living on the street is devastating. And uh, the things that happen to people who live on the street, the things that children have seen happen to their parents, the things that have happened to them themselves, um, just the violence that they've witnessed. Uh, so it's not just simply... Uh, not having a roof over your head or not having a meal in front of you. It is uh, trauma on top of trauma. Uh, so we take away some of that, um, the issues by feeding them and clothing them and, uh, you know, sharing some some loving hospitality with them. But also these levels of trauma are things that our society is going to have to deal with for the rest of their lives. So I, I appreciate all of that things that Alina said, because it really does impact every uh, inch of our society. Thank you for 
you know, painting that picture of, of kind of what the experience of a person living in poverty or um, living on the street might might experience some of some of this um, trying to give us kind of a window into that. So where are you all seeing either in your own work or in work of your colleagues throughout the community? Where are you seeing programs, resources, solutions that stand out to you as particularly innovative or, um, you know, things to be celebrated and uplifted in in the people who are doing the work? Anytime you see someone who hasn't had many wins in their life, many successes in their life have that, uh, you know, the work of everyone in the community matters. Uh, you very quickly realize when you're doing this work that it's not one organization's business. This is, we're all doing little pieces of what is needed to get people on their feet and moving in a direction that, that they can have this um, just some success that will lead them to the next place of, of feeling valued in the community. Uh, so I, I think that our staff is always looking for those moments, uh, you know, moving people into a, a place that is safe and uh, their a permanent situation after 25 years on the street or seeing a family have a roof over their head and safety uh, you know, even if it's just perceived safety for uh, the first time in years, uh, you know, having children sleep in a bed instead of a backseat of a car for the first time. You know, those are things that uh, that keep you doing the work. And I think that that is not just something that Room the End does. It's something that so many organizations in the city do. And, and, I, and doing that together with a a concerted effort to meet certain goals is, is, I think, what's necessary. I think that we we really need to remember the advocacy piece and talk about what the structural changes we need to make in our community to make sure we are a truly inclusive society. And this needs to go beyond Memphis and into you know, the United States, and we really need to try to reach out and change policy uh, so that we live in a more fair community. I feel that sometimes the work can feel like we are really not advancing, things remain the same, uh, but it's important to remember that we're speaking to the future generations too, and that it's the fact that we have not gotten worse, uh, that may be a win. And so, yeah, we I take my wins where I can. Uh, one year we're not number one, one year where we didn't get worse, that's a win. And speaking about it, bringing it to people's consciousness, we it, it, it's a hard problem. It's a very hard problem. And it's all of us. And it needs policy intervention, but if not now, when? Just because the work is hard, just because we don't see amazing improvement from one day to the next, that doesn't mean we don't keep going. It, it is actually incentive to keep going and keep fighting. I, I can't abandon it. I can't leave the work. I cannot not speak about it. 
I can definitely hear the passion in both of your um both of your voices when you speak about the solutions and the advocacy and even the realities of what it looks like from a day-to-day perspective, but also from a long-term look as well. I'm hearing a lot of common themes to the things that we talk about a lot here on this podcast, whether it's social emotional skills for children, um, social determinants of health, crime, education, economic mobility, the the city's livability, and all of those things. It's all kind of it, it touches it all when you talk about um, people experiencing homelessness and people experiencing poverty. I'm curious how this new data and the data year over year that comes out, Elena, with your work is going to be helpful in getting additional resources or additional funding to hopefully, like you said, move the needle, even if it is a slow move. So we know that uh, organizations such as MICA were formed as a result of the awareness that comes out of these. Uh, And there are programs and interventions that are created uh, as a result of being aware and also being aware of where resources are needed. So I think it is important and it's an important metric. I would like to see much more from the legislature. I would like to see an effort to increase the minimum wage statewide. I would like to see much more of an effort to fund public transportation from a state perspective um, and also maybe from a national perspective. I would like to see much more funding coming to schools instead of talking about defunding schools and, and putting money where, uh, you know, we don't need it, which is private schools, I would like to see a lot more money coming into schools in poverty where there is much greater need. So I haven't seen that. And I will have to uh, actually give a shout out to some of our legislators, such as um, Representative Hardaway, who's done a tremendous effort in bringing attention and trying to get funding and resources to Memphis, I have to say uh, some people in city council um, on both sides of the spectrum uh, that have invited me to talk about these issues um, uh, that I have tried to bring attention to this. So I see that there are some people that have been really responsive and really, really good. Like I said, uh, and on both sides, people who've, who've talked to me, who've asked me questions, who've invited me to speak to city council, uh, who have uh, asked me about the data from, from the legislature. I would like to see more of that, and I would like to see a lot more funding, and I would like to see the minimum wage to go up. It, it really is important that the minimum wage go up. And um, it doesn't matter how much people save. If their wages are not enough to pay for rent, then they're not going to be out of poverty. Um, so I would like to see more of that. I've seen some of it. I would like to see a lot more. 
What about you, Lisa? How do you at Room in the Inn and also other organizations utilize the data that comes from the poverty fact sheet? Well, I think that advocacy being in on those discussions, being part of uh, uh, groups like MICA, being part of uh, those opportunities to say these are real people that we are serving and these are real lives that are impacted. Uh, It's not okay for someone to uh, work hard to achieve their housing goal and the only thing they can afford is something that is unlivable. And that's happening every day in the city, something that is uh, dangerous for their children to live in. So I think continuing to advocate for those things to say, you know, we're not going to solve other problems that people talk about all, all the time that get all of the all of the conversation uh, conversations going like crime without thinking about the those basic human needs of life. And uh, I think that those are the things that when we when you see the percentage of uh, African-American children who are living in poverty in the city, that's a crisis that we should be talking about every day. Somebody should be yelling about it all the time. Um, we can help people get um, employment, but if that doesn't make a difference, then uh, you know that's just a defeating kind of, of opportunity for people who are already living in a uh, seemingly hopeless situation. So ab- absolutely to continue to be part of those con- uh, conversations and uh, keeping up with where, you know, where the needle is and, you know, reminding people that um, it, if everyone does stay focused on this, it could change. Um, so I think that's what those reports do is say, well, look, there is an opportunity for us not to get worse, uh, but to move in, in, in another direction um, and to continue to, to talk about that every opportunity we get. Yeah, absolutely. So both of you have have mentioned some ways already advocating, you know, voting for legislators that support policies um, that can combat homelessness. But what is I think it's easy to feel hopeless or overwhelmed um, as like a thoughtful citizen who who wants to help. How could a Memphian, you know, listening right now get involved and help be a part of the solution? What are some um, just add on to to what you've already kind of started there? Uh, I think people need to be very thoughtful about how they vote. They also need to be involved. It is important to remember, as Athenian leaders said, if you don't pay attention to politics, politics will pay attention to you. Uh, So it is important that we pay attention and that we pay attention that these issues are going to be addressed uh, at the voting booth. Uh, it's really, really important. Uh, the other thing we can do is really call our legislators when something is of importance to us. Um, beyond that, hire people and pay them well. Uh, don't don't try to stiff people. If somebody is mowing your lawn, don't try to pay them five hours and five dollars an hour. Uh, if somebody's cleaning your house, pay them a living wage. Uh, those things are going to make a huge difference in the life of someone. Um, I think that it is very, very important that we act ethically 
in our business dealings, uh, particularly if we're hiring people to do work. Uh, the, the work of people needs to be respected and valued, which is one of, you know, one of the biggest problems. Um, the other thing that I have seen being effective is single room occupancy, uh, taking an old hotel. So a lot of the blighted properties uh, converted into single room occupancy apartments for people in poverty for for rentals that are a lot less so in houston a few years ago a single room occupancy mini apartment with a private bathroom and kitchenette with shared kitchen and living room and computer room would go for four hundred dollars a month so trying to find solutions that are going to be particularly available to this 18 to 25 year old group um that that would be important when we're thinking about maybe uh, the edge board and the type of things we fund. What can we fund as a city that is going to be sustainable in uh, an actual long term solution? What about you, Lisa? What are some ways that folks can be part of the solution? Well, I think uh, just you know paying attention to the fact that there are people that live around every one of us that are are living in poverty with with the kind of numbers that we have in the city it's not if we are coming into contact with people we are coming into contact with people every day and to um you know affordable housing in the city is a key to making it possible and solutions like elena was just mentioning that that are are outside of what is normally done has been done in Memphis in the past. There has to be some creative thought given to how this can work. Uh, building smaller houses uh, for individuals, but also understanding that uh, you know there are families that are not, not able to afford houses that are big enough for their their families. And uh, when the median rent cost in the city is uh, more than any assistance or more than minimum wage, it's not ever going to be a, a, an achievable goal for people. So I think that affordable housing, I think that people can, um, the change happens when people have experiences with people who are in this situation. I, I believe that. I believe that uh, we can talk about it and talk about it and talk about it, but getting people involved in actually uh, having relationships with people who are living in poverty. Uh, it think Life changes when you know someone's name. Life changes when you have held a, a, a baby who is unsheltered. Uh, life's, you know, that's what changes people's perspective on what's happening. As long as it's unseen, as long as it's kept in one part of town. Uh, and that's one of the things that I believe that Room in the Inn uh, offers is um, uh, it's very easy for people to stay in their own neighborhoods and bringing people who are experiencing homelessness into your neighborhood and having them sleep in a building that is in your neighborhood uh, changes how you see that and you know the names of people who are living in this situation. So I think I think it's both and I think being aware of the policies, being involved in that certainly um, 
uh, contacting people who can make those big level policy changes. But I think what motivates people to do those kinds of things is actually having experiences and building relationships with people who are struggling. You both just shared some really great um, opportunities for listeners to kind of get involved and be more aware of the current landscape happening here in Memphis and nationally, but also to kind of be the hands and feet and kind of roll up their sleeves to do that work. Um, I'm curious, as we kind of approach the colder months, Lisa, um, that you were mentioning that Room in the Inn is really kind of focusing on, is there an immediate need that listeners can help provide? Well, I will tell you that before COVID, we had 55 uh, groups of people, mostly congregations, uh, that were sheltering uh, small groups of people in a, a place of hospitality. Uh, so we were able to do a larger number of folks. Uh, since COVID, that number has gone down. And just like everything else, people are not going back to in-person opportunities like we did before. And so it's been gradual. So uh, groups of people who are willing to open up space for that shelter, it's very organized, very safe, uh, and I think an opportunity to to become engaged in something that might have been foreign uh, to your reality before. Uh, and I'll mention that with that, we uh, when this first started 14 years ago, we rarely saw a family come to us for shelter. We uh, there were um, more opportunities for them to have housing, to have assistance. Um, we are seeing so many families now, families with children living on the street, living in unsafe buildings, living in cars. Um, so that has been a big change. And so having more opportunities to provide night-to-night emergency shelter, you know, we, we are doing more transitional kinds of opportunities also. But there still are too many children sleeping on the street every night. Uh, so, um, so I think there are several organizations in town that offer shelter opportunities and becoming involved in those is a way to make a difference. What does success look like for each of you here in Memphis? What would, as Jamie mentioned earlier, um, in a perfect world, what would success look like? Uh, success means that we don't have a poverty rate that goes into double digits. I would like to see a city where everybody has what they need to have their basic needs met. Uh, everybody has access to a safe place to stay. Some safe housing doesn't have to be enormous. It does need to have everything that is needed for hygiene, you know, bathroom, kitchen, uh, sufficient space for all the people. Uh, research has shown that uh, around 300 square feet per person or one room per person living in the house uh, or apartment is what's necessary. I would like to see that everybody has access to healthy foods to maintain, uh, you know, healthy mind and body. Uh, everybody has access to the public transportation they need or to the transportation they need so that they can get from any point to any point of the city in less than an hour. And I would like to see everybody having access to healthcare and everybody having access 
to work that is fulfilling and makes them feel good about themselves. And I would like to see that the racial disparities disappear. That's what success looks like for me. A poverty fact sheet that is no longer necessary. All of those things, <laughs> every one of those things, just basic human needs that, you know, we should all have a right to a place that is safe to sleep. We should all have a right to health care. And we should all have, live in a place where um, we care about each other enough to make sure that happens. Thank you both so much for joining us today and sharing all of the insights that you have. I feel like we've just started kind of scratching the surface on this, but it has been so helpful. And I know that knowing the solutions that are available and the resources that are currently available, plus all of the opportunities, as we like to say here, for people to get involved and be a part of the innovative solutions to come um, is really exciting, especially in this time of year as we kind of point towards hope and the excitement of a new year. So thank you both for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you you for having us. Bye. Bye. Independent Bank is celebrating 25 years of sharing your stories, building your dreams, and serving you heroically. Find out how iBank can help you achieve your financial dreams at i-bankonline.com. Member FDIC.